Introduction and Kushtina Welcome to the picturesque village of Kilmovi, located in northeast County Mayo. This quiet area of green fields and heathland is characterised by a network of old stone walls. Stone is abundant here and has been used for millennia to construct impressive sites such as megalithic tombs, medieval stone cashels, churches, oam stones and homesteads, all of which you will hear more about in this audio guide. The story of Kilmovi began over 5,500 years ago, during the early Neolithic period. This was when the first farmers in Ireland cultivated the land by introducing agriculture and remembered their dead by constructing huge megalithic or big stone tombs. Later, influential saints settled in the area, converting the pagan population to Christianity. The area's name comes from a 6th century missionary saint, Movi, who left miraculous marks on the landscape, including three holy wells. His name is forever remembered in the place name Kilmovi, which means the Church of St. Movi in Irish. But he wasn't the only saint to pass through the area. St. Jude and Ireland's patron saint, Patrick, are said to have also visited Kilmovi. Today, the village is known for its Gaelgori and traditional Irish music. In fact, the village boasts its own Cayley band, known as Kiltori Movi, meaning St. Movi's Musicians. Throughout the guide, we will hear their music and the voices of local people who proudly call Kilmovi home. They will share their insights on the area's folklore, myths and legends with you. Whether you are listening from the comfort of your home or walking or cycling the Kilmovi Heritage Trail, we hope you enjoy this fascinating journey through time, which begins at and ends at Kushtina, Kilmovi's culture and heritage centre, housed in a traditional-style thatched cottage. Here, you can discover more about the story of Kilmovi in the Community Museum, which is located here. The name Kushtina in English means beside the fire. Inside the Heritage Centre you will find a large replica fireplace, similar to traditional farmhouse kitchens, where events such as live music, song, dance and storytelling sessions are held today. When you have finished exploring Kushtina, please make your way to our next stop, Karolaki Court Tomb. Karolaki Court Tomb Karolaki Court Tomb is one of County Mayo's oldest surviving structures and is the oldest site on the Kilmovi Heritage Trail. It has stood here for over 5,500 years and was built during the early Neolithic period as a place for the dead. The Neolithic period began around 4,000 BC and lasted 1,500 years. Many things changed drastically during this time. Traditional hunting and gathering declined in favour of new farming techniques that made food sources more reliable and allowed populations to permanently settle and increase. 
These early farmers living in Kilmovie would have performed backbreaking work, clearing the hazel scrub and woodland that covered this area with nothing but stone tools. They sowed their fields with crops such as barley and wheat, and reared domesticated animals like sheep and cows. The landscape we see today has been greatly influenced by those early farmers who paved the way for our agricultural economy. These people built huge megaliths, or big stone structures, to venerate their dead. Karolaki is a type of megalithic tomb known as a court tomb or court cairn. This style of tomb is commonly found in the northern half of Ireland and western Scotland. Over 100 of them can be found in County Mayo. They take their name from their most distinctive feature, the open court or semicircle uncovered entranceway. Today, the tomb looks different from how it originally was. All that survives of Karolaki is a collection of large moss-covered stones. But if you stood here during the Neolithic period, it would have been much different. Imagine a large, long, trapezoidal-shaped structure of unmortared stones. At the front of the tomb was the semicircular or U-shaped court area. The court's function is unknown, but it may have been used for funerary rites and social gatherings. It led to a gallery or stone-lined passage where the predominantly cremated and unburnt bones of the dead were placed. Artifacts such as round-bottomed, shouldered and unshouldered pottery, flint and chert-leaf-shaped arrowheads and hollow scrapers are often found in these tombs. Karolaki is a transeptal court tomb, meaning that it features additional side chambers which were added to the main gallery. Unusually, this tomb also contains a rare feature of a stone set along the central northeast-southwest axis of the gallery, which divides the entranceway. The reason behind this is unclear but it was purposely chosen by some of Kilmovie's earliest settlers who built this colossal structure. They dragged these stones into position by rolling them over logs or hoisting them with ropes and pulleys. As this was a time before the discovery of metal, they could only rely on their stone tools, ingenuity and incredible engineering skills to construct these vast mortuaries. While we make our way to the next stop, the Fulloch Fia, we will hear from local voice John Cassidy about the hedge school near Karolaki Court Tomb. I'm going to talk about the, the site of the hedge school, the old hedge school. It was founded by uh, a great, great grand uncle of mine, Anthony Freen. And um, it was founded about 1800. It was an old stone cabin, thatched cabin, uh, with a small window and an open door. Pupils came from the surrounding villages of Clonairn, Skehin, Rushings and Banalumpa. First, it was a mud floor 
and they wrote with small pointed sticks cut from a sally rod. Later, they got slates and chalk. This school continued until after the national schools opened in about 1885. Descendants of the founder lived here until 1907. At the time, the penal laws, the English authorities who ruled Ireland at the time, they weren't allowing Catholics to have an education or to hold any position in any kind of, a, say, council jobs or anything like that. So uh, there was no system of education. So they founded these schools, they were called head schools. They were founded in fields and gardens, surrounded by high trees and hedges where they wouldn't be concealed. Teachers then came. How they were trained, I don't know, but they, were, they certainly had to got a certain amount of education to teach. In this particular school, there was three or four different teachers after this guy that founded it, you know? Descendants of his then, his uncle and his cousin, he died in 1907. I got that record out of the, the census of, of 01, and then I went to the archives and I found that um, his date of death in 1907. Uh, his uncle Holton, he was a descendant of Anthony Freyne. Uh, that's all we know about him now, really. Um, very little knowledge about it. The only thing I can say about it is in my grandfather's time, his older brother, there was a 20-year age gap between the two of them, uh, he was taught in the head school and my grandfather went to the national school and the only difference was that the brother was taught through the medium of Irish and the grandfather was taught through English and he had no Irish at all. Fear. In this marshy field, home to wetland birds like snipes, you will see low-lying circular mounds known as Fulochfir. When archaeologically excavated, these mounds typically reveal a central rectangular pit lined with wood or stone. The pits are quite large, measuring up to two meters in length and one meter in width, and some are capable of holding around 200 liters of water. Evidence for a hearth is usually found nearby, and surrounding the pit and the hearth is a large horseshoe-shaped pile of cracked stones. The stones were most likely heated in the hearth and either shattered from the extreme heat or experienced thermal shock and broke when the scorching rocks were dropped into the pit full of water. When the water cooled, the heat-cracked stones were removed and thrown into a nearby pile which grew over time and formed the mounds visible today. Since they were first used during the Bronze Age, which lasted from 2500 to 500 BC, the original function of the Fulachfia has been forgotten. However, many theories about their use have been put forward. Some believe they were baths, others suggest brewing sites, places to dye clothes, or even sweat lodges. Currently, the most widely accepted theory is that they were prehistoric cooking sites. This fits neatly with their title, Fulachfia, which loosely translates from Irish to deer pit or roast. If you stood here during the time of construction, you may have seen the prehistoric people of Kilmovi digging the pit, perhaps lining it with moss and wood, trying to make it watertight and then pouring buckets of water into it. 
A selection of meat from a recent hunt might have been wrapped in straw and dropped into the water. People may have gathered around the fire, watching the rocks glow and jumping back as they exploded. They would have gathered up the hot rocks and the sound of sizzling stones hitting the water, steam rising and the smell of boiled meat would have assailed your senses. Again, like the megalithic tombs, it is likely that the local community built and used these sites. Whatever their original use, these prehistoric sites were extremely popular and can be found in their thousands across the island of Ireland. In Kilmovie alone, there are at least 10 known Fulakfia sites, including another one found 50 metres further down this field. Recent archaeological excavations on the nearby N5, Charlestown Bypass, uncovered 39 Fulakfia. The preservation here had been so good that the wood that lined the troughs had survived. During excavation, archaeologists found animal bones, lithics, and even an unusual biconical tin bead with ribbed decoration, similar to others found in Flag Fen, England. When you are ready, please make your way to our next stop, Natrio Vanaha. Natrio Vanaha, or the Three Holy Waterfonts. Natrio Vanaha, or the Three Holy Waterfonts, is the name given to the large stone located in the boundary wall of this field. It is believed to be a bullon stone, meaning a round hollow or a bowl in Irish, a reference to the round depression or basin often found carved into these stones. Bullons tend to date to the early Christian period, which lasted approximately from 400 to around 1000 AD, but have also been found at prehistoric sites. Natrio Vanaha Bullon is extremely impressive. Not only does it measure a whopping 1.7 metres in width, but it also contains three large semi-spherical basins. Typically, most bullons have one basin, when it rains, these basins fill with water, giving rise to the idea that it may have been used as a water font. However, the original function or purpose of these stones is unknown. Some speculate they are water fonts since they are often found near churches and holy wells. However, they are also found at non-religious sites and might have been used as mortars for grinding herbs, grain, or even crushing metal ores. The widespread distribution of Boulon stones suggests that they were both common and useful to the people of medieval Ireland. Though we may have yet to learn their original use, folklore from the later 19th and 20th centuries suggests they were associated with cursing and curing rituals. In these ceremonies, a person would place a stone in the basin. Turning it one way would enact a curse, while turning it the opposite way would produce a cure. To this day, Natrio Vanaha is still used to cure warts, which Martin Feeney will tell us about now. We've got the ring forts and the three wells, or that is known as the Bullon Stone. 
which would never be known in our, in our villages, the Bologna stores, would be known always as three wells because they maintained their holy wells, you know. So I was in the local pub one night, like, you know, and this lady came up to me and she said, was the three wells on my land? And I said, no, they're on the side of the road, but it is on my land technically, like, you know. And then she explained to her that she had warts on her hands and that she had been at the doctor for two or three months and she was on tablets and creams and nothing seems to be working. I said, would it be okay if she went up and washed her hands in it? I said there was no problem whatsoever. Like so about three weeks later I was in the local bear again and this lady came back up to me again and she said uh, she went up the next day and she washed her hands in it. And three days later she said there wasn't a sight of a wart or nothing and her hands were completely gone. So there must be some sort of a thing to it, like you know, at the same time, like but they're known as the holy wells as well, like even though the archaeologists maintain it's a bull on stone, but it'll still be three wells to us. This colossal stone was placed in its current location in the 1930s, after it had been discovered in a field boundary wall. Its original location remains a mystery, though perhaps it had a connection with our next stop, Kilariki Ecclesiastical Site, which is located in the field in front of you. Kilariki. Kilariki means the Church of Erken in Irish. Sadly, who Erkin was, or what they did during their lifetime, has been lost in the mists of time. However, the site's name, local folklore and physical remains give us some clues. According to legend, this medieval church site was associated with St. Movi and may date back to the 6th century AD. Perhaps this was the great Movi Clarenach, who was considered to be one of the Twelve Apostles of Ireland. He founded a monastic school in Glasnevin, County Dublin, where he taught some of Ireland's greatest saints, including St Canis, the patron saint of Kilkenny, and St Colum Kill, one of Ireland's three patron saints. In the 6th century, St Movi came here as a missionary, converting the local pagan population to Christianity. Later folklore claims that when St. Movi died, he was buried at Kilariki before being reinterred at St. Patrick's graveyard, which we will see later on our tour. Visitors to Kilariki today will find a large circular enclosure bounded by a low stone wall, hedgerows and trees. In the past, during the early medieval period, you may have seen a small wooden church near the centre of this enclosure. There would have been a small graveyard around the church. Monks would have lived here and worked the surrounding land, but now the site is only inhabited by local wildlife, such as badgers and pheasants, and is a very peaceful spot. Within the enclosure, the remains of two stone cairns, an internal stone and earthen bank, and a souterrain have survived. Souterrains, whose name comes from the French word souterrain, meaning underground, are subterranean tunnels found in many medieval sites, both secular and religious, across Ireland. The tunnels are often stone or wood-lined and can measure from 5 metres in length to over 100 metres. Being underground, they are not subject to the changing weather and tend to be cool all year round, meaning they could have functioned as a store for perishable food, such as milk, butter or meat. 
Some souterrains also show evidence of being used as a place to hide people or goods of high value during times of attack. To tell us about the souterrain in modern times, we are joined again by Martin Feeney. Oh, yeah, that, uh, it's there for years, like, you know. And there's a, like a little room down in, in, uh, in the ring port itself. Like, there's a small, narrow chamber where you can actually... We used to slide down more kids and everything like that, and played and everything. And you can actually go down into it, and you can just about stand up on it. But my, father, uh, my mother's father, Thomas Duffy, went down at one time, like, years and years ago. And he said, there's another chamber going back into it. So he walked back through the chamber, like I said, it was very narrow and dangerous. But on the way back in the chamber, there was an incline in the, the wall where a person could actually stand in. And if somebody was coming along, I'm sure they got what was coming to them, like, you know. But he decided then that he said it was too dangerous, like, you know, he told him, mother said, no, it's too dangerous with the kids and everything. So he closed it up. But uh, I remember years ago after that then, I had a cow that caved, and she caved about two or three days, like, and the cattle cub was allowed to go into the air and everything. The next thing I came back and this cow was there, looming away and awful distress. And I went up and I, I couldn't find the cave. And I looked down and I couldn't see the cave, and I went for to search. And my neighbour came and gave me a hand, couldn't find it. So I went back again to the same thing, and the cow would never moved. Went back and we got a torch and shut him. There was a cave below, as happy as a lord below. <laughs> and to go back down in, and then in. Lift, get, uh, shove the cave back up again, like you know. So, but, but uh, it, it was it was a lot there. You see, there was white things hanging off the ceiling too, as well. You know, it's lovely and cool down there. When you were finished exploring Killer Iki, followed the heritage trail to our next stop in Rushin's West, where we will hear from another local storyteller about the Frame family. Rushin's West. At this stop, you will encounter three different sites. The first is a 19th century farmhouse and outbuildings, which Dominic Kyo will tell us about now. Uh, this uh, farmhouse is what would be described as a, a typical direct entry farmhouse um, of the 19th century, uh, which means that by direct entry, it means that uh, when you walk in, you're directly into the kitchen. Um, an interesting feature that's found in a lot of these farmhouses is a bed out shot beside the fireplace, uh, commonly known around here as a hag. Uh, in Irish, that would be a colliach, um, because ungraciously, that's where the old people of the house used to sleep, uh, which meant they could still be involved in the day-to-day -day of the family and everything. So the, the farm building layout at the back of the house gives a lovely courtyard effect, um, which you can see clearly from the, the roadway. Um, a very interesting feature, which is only found in this area of East Mayo, is the double row of flagstones at, at the uh, eave level of the roof. Um, this was uh, making use of a locally abundant flagstone in the area, um, a very clever way of using it. And it also prevented the rainwater from running directly down the shed walls, which prevented algae growth and saved the farmer having to whitewash it too often. <laughs> Um, it also minimised the amount of thatch needed on top of the roof. Um, in this area, the roofs were thatched with, predominantly with rushes, which gave a very green colour when they were fresh. Um, another uh, very interesting building in this complex is the cart shed, which is to the right of the gateway. Um, this would have had originally a, a fully flagstone roof, 
um, which is an unusual enough thing in this area. Um, but if you take a minute to have a look at the size of the flagstones on the roof and just think how difficult it was to get them up in a time before the mechanic, mechanical lifting gear or tra tractors or anything like that, it was uh, some phenomenal feat. When you are ready, pass frames and walk through the gate that leads into the field. Towards the end of the field is a holy well called Tobernabacholia, or the Well of the Crozier, which Margaret Lynchahon will tell you about now. Over 1,400 years ago, St. Movi was in the area converting the local pagans to Christianity. To do this properly, he needed to baptise them. However, St. Movi had no water source, so he took his bacalia, or his holy staff, and he hit the ground three times. Wells suddenly appeared where the holy bacalia touched the earth, including this one. There is also another local tale of how three wells were created in the area. In this story, St. Movi was visited by his sister, a nun called St. Jude, who lived in County Sligo. While on her way, St. Jude met a boy minding cows. He told her that some local people thought she was a witch and were following her. He said he would escort her to the church, but he needed to bring water to his cows first. She was very grateful for the boy's help and said he would never be short of water again. Suddenly, St. Jude took three long steps and reached the safety of Kilmavi. Each step she took created a holy well, including this one here. The third site is just beyond the well. It is a pillar of schist over a metre in height. This is no ordinary rock, but an oam stone. Over 1,500 years ago, a stonemason took a chisel to its northeast-facing edge and carved a series of horizontal and diagonal lines. These marks, which are cut vertically into the rock edge, are examples of oam script, an early form of Irish writing. The oam stone here appears to be part of the earliest phase of oam inscriptions and could date back to the late 4th or early 5th century AD. This means that it is one of the oldest in Ireland and one of only 11 in County Mayo. The oam letters are read from bottom to top and generally record the names of prominent people, their father's names and sometimes tribal affiliations or geographical areas. The inscription here reads, Alatus Machibra, which translates as Alatus the son of Br. Unfortunately, due to damage, Alatus' father's full name was lost. The stone might have been damaged when it was taken from its original position and was used as a kneeling stone for the nearby well. When the importance of this stone was recognised, it was removed and reset in a bed of concrete where it now stands. Perhaps it was originally used to commemorate Alatos, or it could have been a tribal boundary marker for land which once belonged to him. When you are ready, make your way to our next stop, St. Patrick's Church and Graveyard. St. Patrick's Church and Graveyard Welcome to St. Patrick's Church and Graveyard. 
Amongst the collection of lichen-covered headstones, you will find the ruined remains of St. Patrick's Church, also known as Antiampelnua, or the New Church. It is thought that this church may have replaced an earlier structure, possibly dating back to early medieval times. A bullion stone was recorded here, and stone fragments of windows and doors from the Romanesque architectural style, dating from 1120 to 1220, can be found in the surviving walls of the newer church. The church ruins provide a perfect habitat for many types of leafy ferns, including rustyback fern, maidenhair and spleenwort. Ivy can also be found, which provides a refuge for small birds like robins, wrens and dunnocks to nest. In early winter, the ivy's black fruits provide food for blackbirds, thrushes, and even pine martens. Take some time to listen to the birds around you now. Both the church and the graveyard are dedicated to Ireland's patron saint, who spent time in County Mayo. To tell us more about this, we are joined by John Matt Duffy. So uh, St. Patrick spent time in County Mayo, founding churches, creating holy wells, like Jesus in the desert and Moses on Mount Sinai. St. Patrick spent 40 days on Croke Patrick, praying and fasting and dealing with demons. Once he had completed this task, he made his way east and stopped at Kilmovie to convert the local community to Christianity. Legend claims that he's met down nearby in Nochnacresha and prayed there. The power of his prayers shaped the stone and to this day the imprints of his knees and elbows can be seen there. Nochnacresha is a hill on the opposite side of the road from St. Patrick's Cemetery. St. Patrick is not the only saint to have a connection to this sacred place. Legend claims that when St. Movi passed away, he was initially buried in Kilariki, but was later reinterred here. However, no grave marker commemorating the saint survives. After his death, St. Movi's miraculous Bacholia, or Crozier, which created the three holy wells, was housed in St. Patrick's Church. Pilgrims flocked from far and wide to view it, as the Bacholia was known to miraculously shed tears if the person holding it lied. In essence, it was an early medieval lie detector. For centuries, it attracted attention, but by the 1800s, the church was in ruins and St. Movi's Pacholia was lost. Before leaving St. Patrick's Church and Graveyard, take some time to explore the vast array of 18th and 19th century vernacular headstones. You might spot some interesting examples, such as the T-shaped Tau Cross headstones. These are extremely rare and are only found in a handful of sites across Ireland. You might also find triangular and discoid grave markers, and even a headstone that appears to be shaped like a spear. No. 
To tell us a bit more, we are joined again by John Matt Duffy. St. Patrick's Cemetery is hundreds of years old, no one exactly knows, but there is some headstones there and they're dated over 200 years. Celtic crosses, some would be quite expensive in their time and others then are just simple crosses cut out of ordinary flagstones. Some flat covering the entire grave and the lettering was just written in by simple means of hammer and chisel and every time you visit the cemetery you can see different different headstones and if the moss was cleaned off some of the Celtic crosses it's quite remarkable the ages people lived until you know some over a hundred years old and some infants very young people and there is, I'd imagine, there would be thousands of people buried there. Many of the headstones display local names that can still be seen and heard around Kilmovi today. When you have finished here, go to the next stop, Kilcashel Stone Fort. Kilcashel Stone Fort. You are now approaching Kilcashel or Cullancashel, meaning the wood of the stone fort in Irish. This fort was built over 1,500 years ago from white quartz and red sandstone during the early medieval period. Though its origins may lie further back in the Bronze Age or Iron Age. When it was first constructed, it would have had a dark red colour, but the stone has weathered over the centuries to the dark grey you see today. Kilcashel Stone Fort is a monument of national significance. It was one of the sites included in the Western Stone Forts Project, an initiative of the Discovery Programme that examined a number of nationally important dry stone forts in the west of Ireland. Kilcashel Fort is circular, measuring 30 metres in diameter, with walls up to 4 metres in height and almost 4 metres thick. The walls hint at a life of wealth, power and high status, but also of danger. The magnificence of the Kilcashel stone fort would indicate that a very important family, or king, lived within its massive stone walls. Both ring forts and cashels acted as homesteads for an extended family who farmed the surrounding land. They are very similar in size, shape and function, but cashels use stone as their defence rather than the earthen banks and wooden palisades of ring forts. Since stone does not rot away, like wood, we can still see some of the distinguishing features of this fort that its former occupiers would have been familiar with. The impressive double-lintel entrance to the fort can be found in the east-facing wall that avoids the strong prevailing southwesterly winds. The doorway has parallels with the entrances of other great stone forts, such as Dunangasa on Inish Moor, County Galway. 
Excavations conducted here in 1999 revealed evidence of a paved passage, post holes and a spud stone or socketed stone that may have held doors in place on either side of the passage. Walking through this doorway into the centre of the fort, you might notice two low lintelled openings at the base of the west wall. These openings led to a creepway built inside the almost four-metre-thick walls. The openings are thought to line up with the sun on certain days in October and February. The builders of the fort also constructed two small houses near the centre of the interior, the stone foundations of which can still be seen today. Near these foundations is a sutrain or underground passage, which may have been used to hide people and valuables during times of attack. The souterrain may also have functioned as an early fridge, where perishable foods such as meat, milk and cheese could be stored under the cool, damp earth. Local folklore claims that the souterrain connects this cashel with another cashel located 620 metres away. However, a geophysical survey which allows specialists to see features underground without excavation found no evidence for this. The cashel walls are sheer from the outside, but inside, stone stairs built into the internal walls gave the inhabitants quick access to the top. From there, they could watch over their animals and crops in the surrounding fields and keep an eye out for danger. Nowadays, the top of the wall is home to an extraordinary heather habitat. This layer of peat built up on the wall now acts as a lifeline for the heathers, tormentals and bilberries that grow there. Take some time to explore the fort, then find a comfortable spot to listen to our next track. Music in Kilmovi. Kilmovi has a strong musical tradition that has been passed down through the generations. To tell us more about music in the area, we are joined by Bianna Smith, who taught in the local school alongside her husband, Joseph McGowan. They both had a passion for traditional music, which they incorporated into the school curriculum. Well, it has a tradition of the Irish music for down the years. In every uh, country house, there was a flute or an accordion or whatever. And uh, before such places as heritage rooms or anything like that, they had a clubhouse. And there they, they used to gather and have the music there. But they always had the music and some great characters, you know, and they made great friends anywhere they went. When you have the music, you, you'll always make friends. Well, Joe used to teach it in the school, and I used to teach it the little bits at the beginning, you know. And then when they went into the principal, Joe, the, he taught them the reels and the jigs and all that, you know. And they had, the, they had dancing and all, all that. And of course, it was the old-time dances they did any place. So there was a, a session or a party. They had the, the sets, half set or full set. 
and they had uh, Stacker Barley and the Shatishan, Shudranke uh, and all those you know, old, old, old dances and singing was the same, Shanno singing. The tradition is there and, and it's being kept up. Yeah, they're still in the school teach a bit of music and tin whistles and all that, you know. So there is a love of the music in Kilnavi, great love of it. You know, and in homes, in every home nearly, there was someone playing. And even the granny, if she was living with them, she might be able to play the accordion or something, you know. The school students Bianna spoke about were part of Kilmovie's younger Cayley bands who won the 1976 and 1984 Cayley band competitions at the All-Ireland Fla Kiol at under 11 and under 14 levels. This was a massive achievement for such a small village, beating competition from all over Ireland, England and America. The village also has an older Cayley band known as Kiltori Movi, named after the village's patron saint. As we return to our first stop, Kushtina, we shall listen to a reel called Love at the Endings, or Copper Plate, by local musicians Anne-Marie and Emily Rooney. Conclusion We have now returned to Kashtina, where our story began. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the Kilmovie Heritage Trail audio guide, which has taken you on a journey around the charming historic landscape of Kilmovie. From prehistoric tombs to saints, cashels and traditional music, this area is exceptionally rich in history and has something for everyone to enjoy. The Kilmovie Heritage Trail has been created with thanks to the landowners who have voluntarily and generously given access to their lands so the public can enjoy these incredible heritage sites. If you have more time and want to explore other heritage sites in the area, why not visit Ullar Abbey, built on the banks of the great angling spot Ullar Lake in 1430. This abbey has an intriguing history. The story goes that it was founded without papal consent, causing two friars to be excommunicated for the offence. Further afield, you can find the famous Knock Marian Shrine, where the Virgin Mary, St. Joseph and St. John the Evangelist appeared to locals in 1879. Since then, it has become one of Ireland's most holy sites, where hundreds of thousands of pilgrims visit annually. Not far from Knock 
you can also find the 25-metre-high Mulek Round Tower, which has stood tall in the East Mayo landscape for centuries. The audio guide was produced by Abarta Heritage on behalf of Mayo County Council and Kilmovie Community Housing, CLG, with support from the Department of Housing, Local Government and Heritage Community Monuments Fund 2023. Thanks to Deirdre Cunningham, Mayo County Council Heritage Officer, Jerry Walsh, Mayo County Council Archaeologist, and the Kilmovie community, in particular Siobhan Butler and Sheila Hunt, and local voices John Joe Cassidy, Martin Feeney, Dominic Kyo, Margaret Lynchahon, John Matt Duffy, and Bianna Smith for their support, time, and efforts. The guide was written by Tara Clark and edited by Roisin Burke. Narration was by Jerry O'Brien. The guide was produced in Bluebird Studios with sound engineer Declan Lonigan and producer Tara Clark. More audio guides are available from our website, abartaheritage.ie, or on your favourite podcast platform. Simply search for Abarta Heritage to discover the stories of Ireland. <laughs>